Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now, we're going to turn in our Bibles today to Acts chapter 12. It's on the outline. You could just watch it there if you would like or read it there if you'd like. We're talking today, uh, our series for this year, um, as we've said, some of you are just joining us. Some of you are just beginning to watch. So let me give you a, a 90 second recap. Um, our theme for this year is fight the good fight of faith. We're on number nine today, the church built upon the rock, learning to prevail in a hostile culture. We, we spent about nine weeks before today, and then Pastor Corey's message was a good addendum. We've spent time talking about what has happened, and not only about what has happened, but what our response should be. And we took as our lesson from Scripture, Judah as she was exiled into Babylon, we saw the lessons that Daniel taught. We saw the reactions that the three Hebrew children modeled. We've talked about 2020 being a year of exposure, what we were, what we were not, what we ought to be. All of that was exposed. Now, don't, don't let guilt bother you. All of us had bad days in 2020. Uh, we, all, we all did. We all had moments we acted in an unchristlike way. So when I say 2020 was to show us what we are, it doesn't mean if you had a bad reaction that you're no good. It just means probably that you are human or have a very human pastor that you've been following, one or the other. But 2020 has showed us what we are, the weakness of our faith, the strength of our faith. The, the carnality of some of our opinions and reactions. Some of us have fallen prey into thinking that we can fix it through politics or we can fix it through um, revolution or we can fix it through sticking our head in the sand and doing nothing. But God has used 2020 to show us the state of our nation and, and as importantly, maybe even more so, to show us the state of the church. Now, in 2021, he is equipping us to become everything he intended us to be. Now, you might think, well, the virus is in retreat and things are about to get back to normal. I've said before, I'll, I'll say it again. I'm not sure that we're ever going to be back to normal as we understand normal. But I do think that the Lord, for those who will listen, is opening ears and opening eyes that we can understand what we've been through and we can understand what lies ahead. I have said this, and this I hope will be the last time I say it for many months because I've said it about every other week for the last three months. I do believe that the nation has been under judgment. I think the nation is still under judgment. And I think the church is under judgment, but it's not a terminal judgment. God is not trying to destroy the church. If he was trying to destroy the church, he's had better reasons and better opportunities over the last 2,000 years. But he has promised that the church will be victorious. 
I want you to hear me. He has promised that we will be presented to Jesus as a glorious church, as a bride without spot or wrinkle. And I feel so sorry for those that think our programs and our efforts will make us spotless and wrinkle free because we don't have the ability to live that way. But it's going to be a work of cooperation between us and the Holy Spirit who is sanctifying and purging and cleansing us. Now, I want to tell you, uh, there's two things that I need to say before I even get into the message in detail today. Um, I want you to understand that this is not a message about judgment. This is a message about refinement. Uh, A wise man, a wise woman, when they understand that judgment comes and they understand why judgment has come. We talked about that at length last week. The wise man or woman, the wise child of God begins to understand where do I go from here? What do I do from here? That my friend is called sanctification. God is pointing out things so that you just read the, the account of the first seven uh, of, of the seven churches in, uh, in chapters two and three of Revelation. You understand that God is not out to destroy his church. He's out to refine his church. He's out to make his church beautiful. Loved ones, I've been a pastor for uh, over 40 years. And one of the biggest challenges to me is to try to assimilate the critics and try to make the critics happy and try to make the critics understand you're, you're welcome in this church, what have you. And I got to tell you the truth. I've run out of patience for the, uh, for the ministry of making critics comfortable in their criticism. I mean, I really have. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about I am, I am redoubling my efforts to purge and to purify through the word of God, the church that wants to go. I can't waste my time spending time on trying to convince a critic who can't be convinced. You guys need to understand your life. Some of you are your, you're surrounded by critics and you think you call them prophets. You call them messengers of God and you've got to understand all they are is critics. And there's nothing you can do with a critic. If, if the spirit of God has been unsuccessful in changing the heart of a critic, you're not going to change the heart of a critic and I'm not going to change the heart of the critic. Now, if someone has a concern, that's a totally different matter. Someone says something's wrong and it needs to be set right. That's, that's different. That's not a critic. That's a problem that needs to be solved. In the book of Acts, the, the widows that were not receiving a daily portion said, we've got a problem. And the church dealt with the problem. A church should never be afraid to deal with problems. A pastor should never be afraid to hear a legitimate complaint. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm telling you this. God is refining his church and those that only want the church refined by their standards are going to find themselves sorely disappointed, sorely disappointed because God is in process of making himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. Um, I know there are a lot of people that say, well, the church has has met its doom. And there are people that, you know, say, I don't have anything to do with the church because the church has failed, or I'm just going to meet it at, at, you know, a home group because the institutional church has failed. There are failures in the institutional church. There are failures in home churches. There are failures in fellowship groups. Failures abound everywhere. But I want to tell you this, don't sell out 
The, the idea, I mean, don't sell out to the idea that the church has served its purpose and the church is irrelevant. I want you to know the church, um, uh, 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 oh, I can't remember his name. Uh, let me see if I wrote it down. I did, John Dickerson. This is what John Dickerson said. He said, the tree of Christianity in the U.S. is centuries old. She's a mighty oak with deep roots. So many saplings have grown up under her shade. Trees of education, of reform, of freedom, invention, work ethic, opportunity, resourcefulness, wealth, and science. He says, don't sell this mighty oak off as something like a little frail dogwood that doesn't survive a harsh winter. And loved ones, I, I'm reminded, Erwin uh, Lutzer uh, in his book, um, The Church in Babylon, gives a good illustration of this. And he tells us the story. The, the, uh, the date was December 3rd, 2017, just a few years ago on a Sunday morning, people gathered in Pontiac, Michigan to see the destruction of the Silver Dome. It had been built in 1975. I was celebrating the destruction of the Silver Dome. Being a Celtic fan and a Packer fan, we had had our trouble there. And I thought, you know, goodbye and good riddance. But there were a lot of people that wanted to honor the Silver Dome and they showed up and they went through this lavish ceremony. And then at 8.30 in the morning, the dynamite was detonated. Debris flew everywhere. They even did a second charge to be sure that everything... But what happened is the silver dome stood. It blew out all the extraneous building materials, but the steel girders stood. And the news reporter was, trying, was scrambling. Why didn't it go down? These were two blasts that engineers say are sufficient to bring her down. And you know what the official response of the city was? It was just built too well. It was just built too well. Now, it ended up taking them several months to get it down. They eventually got it down. And this is where our analogy breaks down. But I want to tell you something. Whenever we think a culture or a government or a system is going to bring down the church, we need to realize that all those attempts of the world to do, accomplish, is to blow out peripheral stuff. But the church will stand. Jesus said... I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, don't get me wrong. There is no perfect church. There's no perfect pastor. There's no perfect denomination. There's no perfect theological system. I mean, we, we all have our flaws and our errors, but we have this in common. If we are true Christians, we are bought by the blood of Jesus. We were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver or gold but by his precious blood. And you know what, loved ones, we've been talking about rebuilding the walls of our lives. But I tell you what else is taking place. God says, I'm going to rebuild the walls of my church that have come down. That's why we believe in a, in a remnant church. I'm not big on denominationalism at, at all. I, I don't think that there's any church that has everything figured out or every problem solved. But I do believe that Jesus is committed to every church that names him as Lord. To every church that names him as Lord. You know, it's sort of like being a parent. He is our parent. And, you know, you may have nine children in your home. 
And every one of those personalities are different. Every one of their strengths are different. Every one of their weaknesses are different. But you love them all and you would never think of writing off any of them. I think we need to have a revival of how much God loves the church. But that being said, the text we want to read is Acts 12, 24. I'm going to list just one sentence out of that magnificent chapter. That chapter has seen the church rocked by murder and martyrdom. Herod killed James and when he saw that it pleased the enemies of the church, he said, well, I'll take Peter. He seems to be the leader and I will wipe him off the face of the earth as well. Uh, it was murder. It was mayhem. It was persecution. Saints were hiding behind doors and it was all kinds of, of nefarious things going on in an absolutely toxic climate. But when the story is finished being told, this is what it says. But in spite of the murder, in spite of the martyrdom, in spite of the fear, in spite of the persecution, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Loved ones, no matter what happens in America or Canada, no matter what happens around the world, no matter what freedoms may be lost or what laws may be violated, no matter what persecution may arise, we have a verse that we hold to and it is Acts 12, 24. The word of the Lord will continue to grow and be multiplied. The word of God is not hindered. Paul said to those church members in the first century, he said, I may be in chains, but the word of God is not bound. And we don't need to worry about being bound. Central truth is uh, just an old farmer saying, I love it. And it goes like this. Farmers plant seed in a field, not in a barn. Farmers plant seed in a field, not in a barn. Now we're, we're shifting gears and we're going we're gonna to basically leave the church in Babylon behind. Um, uh, we, we really did that a couple of weeks ago, but we made some applications. That's what I want to do today. I want us to be sure as we start marching, I want us to be sure that we understand this is not an age, a time, a season for the church to withdraw from society and hide behind the walls of our building. Because we plant seed in a field, not in a barn. Now there are seven essential adjustments that the church in America must be willing to make if she is to survive. Now some of these changes are very subtle, you know, just, just a slight adjustment. Some of them are already doing. Some of them are spectacular. I mean, it will, we'll be headed this way and now we have to start heading this way. But I want you to know that this is not a time to be disheartened. This is not a time to be discouraged. You say, well, all of this correction, all of this chastisement, loved ones, the book of Hebrews tells us that if we're not chastised, we need to go back and figure out if we really are his at all. There will be chastisement. There will be correction. But what does it mean? It means we are His. It means we belong to Him. 
Now you say, Pastor, so every church is going to be okay and every Christian is going to be okay. No, the promise of God was never universal in the sense. Again, look at the churches in Revelation. Seven churches, every one of them had the promise that you can overcome. But it was obvious from the presentation, not all would overcome. He said, I stand at the door and knock. We talked about that, that last week. And the narrative ends with us not knowing if they would open the door or not. I heard a preacher talking about the church at Laodicea. He said he was on a tour of Asia Minor. He said he walked in the town of Laodicea and he said, I walked over the cobblestones that were left from the early city. He said there was nothing there. This would have been the city that Paul was, or that Jesus was speaking to in the church that Paul would have been familiar with. He said there was nothing above ground level. It was all destroyed. Oh, a city had risen up down the road, but there was nothing. And he said, as I walked over this, he said, I realized um, with, with, with shock in my heart, he said, so this is what happens when Christ threatens to spit a church out of his mouth. This is what's left. No, I, I do believe that the promise of God is for the remnant. Not every church will listen and not every church will survive. There are record closings of churches right now. Uh, you, you don't say, well, God's not taking care of his own. God is taking care of his own. But we've got to understand that in America, we are like the church did in, in the Roman Empire in the 300s. We've created a climate where Christianity doesn't mean Christianity. Well, I'm getting deeper than I want to go. But for churches that will listen... There are seven things that will, if we, can, if we can grasp it, it'll ensure success. Although we don't know what that success might look like. Now, if a church, you say, well, pastor, what if a church can't make these transitions? If they love Jesus, if Jesus is Lord of their life, he will welcome them into heaven. He will embrace them. He will always care for them. But I'm talking about an overcoming church that fulfills what God has for them. Here's number one. I've got to hurry. Y'all are going to have to do a better job of listening than you've done so far this morning. So just right now, make up your mind. I'm going to listen better. Here's number one. We must remember to focus upon people, not just buildings. Now, this is the point that is easiest to misunderstand because when I get through with this point, you're going to say, well, we shouldn't build anything new or we shouldn't buy anything new. That's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, when, when I talked to David Wilkerson years ago about this, he said, difficult days are coming. I said, my church is about to go on a building program. What do I do? He said, you've got to understand. He said, you've got to hear from the Lord because some people, the Lord will say, don't build. It will bankrupt you. He said, but other people, he will say, build, buy property or whatever, because God knows the future of that church. It's not that one was good and one was bad. Everybody's direction is different. Every church's direction is different. But whether God tells you to buy land or to build a building, or God tells you to sell your building and do something else, either way, you've got to understand that our, that our focus is on people, not the buildings. We have a lesson from North Africa. I tell you, as a... a you know, a, a, a lover of church history, um, the stronghold of Christianity 
in, in the next generation of Christians was in North Africa. North Africa, which is now a Muslim stronghold for the most part, was the stronghold of Christianity in the early days of the church. But there were some church fights, and I'm not going to bore you with the details. Oh, what, what am I thinking? I couldn't be boring. But... Um, <laughs> No, seriously, I don't want to bore you with the details, but the church got into fights over buildings and uh, uh, icons, over ritual. The church shifted from being an organism to more of an institution. And I don't think there's anything wrong with being an institution, but you need to be a living institution, an institution that houses an organism. And, and the church focused on cathedrals, the church focused on, on icons, the church focused on what they could see. And when the Muslims came and overran North Africa, the church withered and almost died. The church effectively ceased to exist. And the reason why, you can make this argument, again, I don't have time for the details today, but the reason why is that that brand of Christianity had put all of its affection and devotion and evaluation into the buildings and the icons that they own. And when they lost the buildings, when they lost the icons, they lost faith and they began to, to, to splinter and fragment. And it wasn't a health the uh, uh, fleeing like it was out of Jerusalem. The saints fled Jerusalem to save their lives, but everywhere they went, they spread the gospel. But the North African Christians, and there are exceptions, I know that. All of you that are church majors at CIU, uh, church history majors, I understand there were exceptions. But basically, the church experienced a horrendous setback in a region that is yet to be won back to Christ. Because everything that they counted dear was a building or a thing that they touched. Helmut Teleki, who was a a great theologian of the last century, he said during World War II, he said, we stood in the streets and saw the effect of our church being bombed. He said, everything was gone. Every building was leveled. Every foundation was destroyed. All the the, uh, celebratory things in the church were burned up. He said, and I stood in the middle of the street and I, I said, well, I'm still in charge. I'm still the pastor. I've got the keys. Then he said, I realized the things that I had a key to didn't exist anymore. See, so what did he do? He reorganized the church. I'm not, this today, this first point is not saying that we should do away with churches or that churches shouldn't build or that churches shouldn't expand. Every pastor has to hear the plan of God for his church. Some churches will will hold where they are. Some churches will expand. Some churches may sell what they have and decentralize. But the fact of the matter of this, only churches that put their focus on people and not buildings will be churches that thrive. Okay, Um, you say, well, pastor, I'm not sure I understand what you mean. Well, let me just ask you, I'm not saying we need to think this is going to happen. I'm not saying that we need to be negative or pessimistic, but I want to ask you, I don't know if you're watching some of the things going on in Canada and other places right now. What do we do? If some politicians have their way, this is not an idle threat. This is not an idle what if, 
But what do we do if the politicians who are threatening to dismember Christianity, what if they win the day? What if they have enough votes to enact legislation? What do we do when the church in America suddenly wakes up one morning and finds out that the cost to serve Jesus is either too high or too risky? We don't think that way in America, but I'm telling you, unless God helps us, the day will come when everybody in this building, everybody listening online, you're going to entertain the thought it's too high a cost or it's too risky uh, to serve Jesus. I'm going to just slip off the radar and be quiet. What does a church do when that happens? What kind of decisions does a church make? What happens? What happens if we're fined? for not accepting every definition of family? What happens if we lose a church exempt status and overnight 40 some odd percent, we figured 40 some odd percent of our budget has to go to taxes overnight. What do we do? What will happen when politicians in mass say what some politicians in micro have said to preach Romans 1 and 2 is hate speech. To say that Jesus is the only way is hate speech. That's the way it was in Rome. Christians were persecuted not because they were religious. Christians were persecuted because they were atheists. You say, what do you, what do you mean atheists? They said Jesus is the only God. We don't believe in this God. We don't believe in that God. We don't believe in the other God. The Romans didn't care if we worship Jesus. They just wanted us to worship Jesus among the other gods. What do we do if we come into a society and we realize that we can't afford to have a building anymore? What do we do when we realize we can't afford to pay the fines for having a boys and girls class. What do we do when we cross into that zone where we are like the Christians in the book of Hebrews, where they had to rejoice in the confiscation of their own goods? Well, I tell you what, if we put all of our eggs into buildings, we'll disintegrate. But if we put our heart and we put our soul into people, we will find a way, not a way to compromise, but a way to adapt. Here's number two. You took that pretty well. Let's go on to number two. We must increase community, not just crowds. Um, loved ones, I think almost every church in America, if a dark day comes, will see a decrease in crowds. Now, it's an odd thing because the more they persecuted them, it says of the Hebrews, the more they multiplied and grew. But you go to uh, the book of Acts after Ananias and Sapphira, and this is what it said. After the event with Ananias and Sapphira, it said that no man dared join themselves to the church anymore. Well, but they were growing. Which, which statement is true? They were growing and increasing in number, but no man joined themselves to the church anymore. Loved ones, I want to tell you, every church that has had success, maybe a good preacher, maybe good music, maybe a good children's program, they all know what it's like to have people come to the church and join themselves to the church. 
but they're never part of the core. They're part of the family, but they're not part of the core. And we've got to understand that no longer is a church going to be measured by those who are in attendance. And we've had, we've had 150 years of that. Success is marked by the number of people that you have. We're about to learn that success is, is counted not by the number of people that you have in attendance, but the number of people that are having transformed lives. I, I remember when I was introduced to the world of algebra. Now you got to understand advanced mathematics in my family was long division. <laughs> Polly, my daughter-in-law is a math genius and I, I realized she could make me feel very stupid if she didn't love me so much because she is a math genius. I brought my introduction to algebra home and my daddy said, what in the world is this crap? <laughs> he said, X equals two. They, they, they're not right. You can't mix numbers and letters. <laughs> my mother sat down and tried to help me. And this is what my mom said. Teresa, you'll love this. She said, baby, all I can tell you is that this number doesn't even mean what it used to. <laughs> They're telling me that this equals this. She says, that ain't, that ain't the way I learned it. I think the church is at that place. We're about to learn some new math. I think we're about to understand for the first time in our history in Western civilization, we're about to really understand what it means that uh, to understand that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's an upside down kingdom. Listen to what Erwin Lutzer said. He talked about his visit to a redwood forest in Northern California. Is this in your notes? Okay. He said, I learned something about these impressive trees. Their roots are relatively shallow. Now you're talking about these giant redwoods. He said, their roots are relatively shallow, but they are all interconnected. I was told that if you could see beneath the ground, it would look like a giant spider web that would span the entire forest area. This has a great advantage. Each redwood is somewhat dependent on the other for its support and even its nourishment. Suppose one tree is far from moisture and other trees are closer to a stream. Those stuck in the desert area will actually receive their nourishment from those that have excess of moisture. The redwoods would not do well if individually planted. They need each other for their stability and their strength. We proud Americans, rugged individualists, and I have no problem with being a proud American and being a rugged individualist. I don't want to be a sheep except the sheep of his pasture. But I also think we need to understand that the church is designed so that our roots interconnect with each other. And I know that some folks, I, I, again, I'm preaching to the choir. You're here, you're listening online. You're not the ones I'm talking to. But we have had an influx of Christians that demand that everything be their way. And they say, I don't need the church. I don't need other believers. And again, I, don't, I shouldn't have to qualify everything I'm saying. I know some of you can't come back to church yet. And I, 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 you know if this applies to you or not. If it applies to you, you're probably not listening. 
But we are going to see a resurgence and a realization and God will even put us in situations where we find how much we need each other. We've been taught that if you have faith, you don't need others. We've been taught that if you're strong in faith, you don't need anything but Jesus. Well, I want to tell you, Jesus, when he created man, Adam was perfect. I mean, such a streamlined body didn't even need a belly button. I mean, Adam was perfect. Adam was not plagued by sickness or cholesterol or diabetes or anything. A perfect man. And God looked at him and out of all that he made when he saw man alone, it's the first time we hear these words from the lips of God. That's not good. That's not good. Everything else he made, that was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. He looks at man alone and he says, that's not good. Now, every lady in here ought to be shouting. God says he needs something. And of course, it began with a wife and then it continued with community. But what we're going to need to understand more than ever before is not only that we focus on people and not buildings, but we increase community, not just crowds. Now, if you really increase community, crowds will probably grow. Crowds will probably grow, but don't let your measuring rod of success be, well, we had 2000 this year. We'll have 3000 next year. Some churches that are following God may have 2000 this year and 800 next year. Here's number three. We must transform lives with truth, not just educate them with stories. We must transform lives with truth, not just educate them with stories. Um, when I went to Southeastern College, you could, um, I think it was called clepping a class. You could clep a class. You could take a test, and if you passed the test, you could get college credit for it. Even though you didn't take the class, you just had to pay for it. Well, I, I, I looked at a couple of those, and there were like four of them before I quit looking that I could ace because I was raised in Sunday school. I mean, Sunday school gave me such a good education that I said, man, I, I, I can clip these and not have to go to class. Now I didn't do it because I thought, no, I need the experience. I need the wisdom. I need the insight. I need the depth of these teachers. So I ended up not clipping anything. I, I, I took the classes um, and I, and it was an excellent decision. It was a, it was a good decision, but I'm telling you when I grew up, Churches made sure that their children knew the stories. But when they left home, we still had this horrible attrition rate of people leaving the faith. And I think it wasn't that the churches were evil. I think that we thought that giving them stories was enough without teaching them how to live the principles of those stories. And loved ones, I want to tell you, there's a trend right now in Christian education. I'm talking about in graduate level classes. There's a trend right now. Some of the most popular teachers are the Bible is about a story. It's not about words. It's about a story. But I tell you what that's done. <coughs> that's created a theological climate where you can make anything mean anything that you want it to mean because you don't have to pay attention to the words. You just pay attention to the story. All that matters is the story. It doesn't matter if Jesus is born of a virgin, just the story. And 
what I think we're going to need to do, not because what we've done has been wrong or not because we failed. I think we've been trying to do this, but we need to teach our little elementary school kids, not only the stories, but what do these stories mean? How do you live out these stories, especially our high schoolers and college age kids? They have got to get not only the story, but they need to understand the principle and the dynamic behind the story. In our church, we believe that the Bible is not just a collection of stories that we draw allegories from, but we believe that every word of scripture is divinely inspired, divinely chosen, God breathed. The Bible says that holy men of old were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were preserved from error. That's why I, I, I just go, my brain nearly explodes when I get into conversational discussions and people say, well, that's, that's just one interpretation. There are other interpretations. And it's like, yeah, and they're wrong. They're wrong. Please don't fall into the trap of saying, I have to accept everybody's pukey theology because people see things differently. Well, of course they do. But that doesn't mean that just because they see it, it's valid, right, or needs to be embraced. No, I, I want to tell you, loved ones, we need to teach our children, we need to teach them that the Bible is true. Every word of it is true. Oh, I know there are difficult things to understand. And if you don't understand the context, you won't understand God saying, wipe out that whole civilization. If you don't understand the context, you won't understand difficult passages in scripture. The Bible is without error. It's our all sufficient guide for faith and practice, but you have to dig deep into it sometimes to understand what's happening. I don't deny that. The, the, the Bible is not easily digested on surface level. It's simple enough that a wayfaring man, even though he might be a fool, can understand the plan of salvation. But it's deep enough that you can spend the rest of your life in intensive study and never unpeel all the layers of its majesty and glory. So we've got to teach our children what to do when you've done everything you ought to do and God still doesn't say yes, he says no. We've got to teach our children how to stand when they've made a godly appeal like Daniel, but the authority says no. We've got to help our children understand that the Lord is worth serving no matter what the cost and you don't bail out. And I'm afraid we Americans have never had to stand up to much of anything. And we're going to have to learn this alongside our children. We're going to have to go to prayer each night and we're going to have to pray for the grace of God to touch our lives, not just the lives of our children. We must transform lives with truth, not just educate them with stories. Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, let's go to number four. You guys are doing better. We're at number four. We must return to vigorous prayer, not just vigorous programs. There are some wonderful programs. There are some wonderful programs. 
And they are programs that have served us well. I'm not saying we need to throw out programs. In fact, if a program works, you don't change just for the sake of change. But neither do you hold to a program because it's worked if it's not working anymore. I mean, there's that constant, in, in a good sense, evolution of a church's programs. Something that worked in the 50s might not work in the 2020s. Something that worked in 2020 might not work in the 2030s. We've got to understand that a church doesn't build itself on a vigorous program. A vigorous program is a tool that we use to build people, but sometimes the handle on a hammer breaks. And you can put scotch tape on it, but it's not going to be the same. I'm not here to say that we need to stick with the old programs, but I am here to say this. Prayer never goes out of style. Prayer is never a, a necessity. And we all say amen to messages about prayer. But I want to ask you, has a message on prayer changed your life? It's not fancy. There are few frills. But we must reapply at Christ's school of prayer and allow the Holy Spirit to teach us to do what we don't know how to do. Prayer is hard work and most Christians don't know how to pray. That's not a criticism. It's just a fact. We have, and pastors have failed you. Church denominations have failed you. We've taught you prayers, but not taught you how to pray. Now, I hope our church is an exception to that. But prayer is hard work. And there's a formula to prayer that Larry Lee gave years ago. He says, it has to begin as a desire. Until you want to pray, you will never learn to pray. And this is the critical point because most people just stop with a desire. I need to pray more. I ought to pray more. I know I don't pray the way I ought to. And they somehow let that soothe their conscience for the rest of their lives. Oh, I know I ought to do better. I know I ought to. You're right, Lord. I ought to do better. But why don't we? It has to begin as desire. And then, loved ones, it has to begin as discipline. You, you need to understand what prayer is. And this is the downfall of so many pastors. You know, uh, David Wilkerson told us, and, and I, I, I quizzed him about this. He said, nobody can pastor a church of the spirit if he's not with the Lord two hours a day. And I was struggling to get in 20 minutes. And I said, I said, Brother Wilkerson, I can pray through all the needs of my church in 20 minutes. He said, prayer is not about the needs of your church. Prayer is about you coming into the presence of Jesus, loving him, serving him. He said, in fact, I'll tell you what you'll find out. The more you pray, the less you'll pray for your church and the more you'll just love him. The more you'll be concentrating on focusing on him. And I, I want to tell you, loved ones, I'm, I'm not saying this patting myself on the back. When he told me that, I thought, my, my word, two hours a day. Uh, loved ones, can I tell you, I, I, I don't feel that I have been in the presence of, Lord, of the Lord in less than a couple hours a day. And now he's talking about in the word and in prayer together. I, I, can't, I can't survive that. That's why I don't take every appointment that presents itself. Because on some days I have to spend time with him or I can spend time over here. 
That's why I don't serve on every committee that I'm offered because I can't allow anything to take me away from that time of prayer. And, and forgive me, I don't mean to sound like I'm patting myself on the back. My, my prayer life is woefully inadequate. But I want to tell you this, it's growing. And it's, it's real. It exists. And what I have found is that God will do some things through my face buried in a towel of tears that he'll never do through a vigorous program. God brings more answers as I wait on him than he would ever do if I went out and tried to solve it in the strength of the flesh. There has to be discipline. You have to start. You say, well, what if I say I'm going to pray 30 minutes a day and I run out of stuff to pray in 15 minutes? Then worship him for 15 minutes. Worship him. There's more than one day I said, Lord, I'm done if you got anything. But you have to have the discipline to do it. And then, and only then, only then, only then, only then does it turn to delight. We want to say, Lord, I want to pray more. And we expect him to touch us so that oh, we, got the, we got the giggles and we got the tingles. You'll bleed before you're blessed. You'll travail before you give birth. Loved ones, the days of the church finding contentment in their confession that they don't pray as they ought to is over. The church needs to return to vigorous prayer and not just vigorous programs. I want to say it to you. I've only said it to you about 12,000 times. But some things happen when I pray that do not happen if I do not pray. Therefore, if I do not pray, then something vital to my life or the lives of those I love may go undone. See, I, I realize if I don't pray, not only is there something in my life that might not be done, there might be something in Ramona's life that won't be done. There might be something in my children's life that won't be done. There might be something in my grandchildren's life that won't be done. There might be something in your life that won't be done. So I take the discipline of prayer and let the Lord turn it into delight. I know that some things happen when I pray that don't happen otherwise. Here's number five. We must build strong lives, not just comfortable ones. We have been shielded from so much in America I think that's going to become less and less. The more we are living lives that please Christ, the more opposition we can expect. Let me, you know, we, we're, we, we love prophecy. Let me give you a prophecy. Here's a prophecy from, from Paul. It's thus saith the Lord. Here it is. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let's move to number six. We must welcome Christ as the object of our service, not just the object of our worship. Now, we got the first or the second part down pretty well. We come to worship him. It's not about us. It's about him. We'll leave a church because we don't like the song the music man picks. We'll, 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 we'll have a protest if the worship isn't sufficiently about him. Our driving motivation, though, is not to worship him. Our driving motivation is to please him. And there's a time for worship. There's a time for service. Peter said, when you are insulted for the name of Christ, 
He said, rejoice because the spirit of glory and the spirit of God rests upon you. I want to tell you a story. When I was in seminary, I attended. I, I, first of all, I tried to, to work at a church. It's hard to go from being a full-time youth pastor to not doing anything in church. And um, it, was, it was in Springfield, Missouri. And um, I want to tell you, if there's some place that doesn't need 22-year-old workers, it's Springfield, Missouri. Uh, everybody from headquarters lives in Springfield. Men and women of God that had forgotten more about serving the Lord than I knew were available to work in those churches. I couldn't find a job to do anywhere, not anywhere. Nobody was interested in me. I was too young. I was single. I was a student. I had, you know, a, a job working 30 hours a week on top of that. Well, you know how it went, 29 and a half hours a week. So they didn't have to consider me full time. But uh, so I started attending a church. It was a great church. It was a flagship church uh, of the Assemblies of God. It was a great church. But I had been to just enough seminars um, and I had had just enough experience that I thought the church was dysfunctional. And I'll tell you why I thought it was dysfunctional. They had so many preliminaries, so much fluff that was unnecessary. In my mind, in my mind, they had so much that was unnecessary. And so I did what any great reformer would do. This is what Martin Luther would have done. This is, this is what uh, Wycliffe would have done. John Huss would have done this. During, during the um, preliminaries of Sunday morning worship, I did the most spiritual thing I could think of. I went across the street to the cafe and I had breakfast during worship and I timed it where I'd come back in just as the last thing was because it, they operated by clockwork. And I thought, I'm a, I'm a reformer. All I want is the preaching of the word because the pastor, Brother Wanamaker, he was a phenomenal preacher. And I was in there one day and just listening to this man expound on the word of God. And it was so beautiful. And in my holy protest, I said, if the rest of the church could catch on to this man's spirit, there'd be a better church. And uh, I, felt, I felt a disturbance. Star Trek I mean, uh, Star Wars was just coming out that year. And I, I put in my journal, there was a disturbance in the force. <laughs> I didn't know what the disturbance was. But as I began to pray, the Lord said, I want you to do something for me. And, you know, I'd already promised him I'd be a missionary, go to the ends of earth, be a martyr, whatever he wanted. But he asked something far more difficult. He said, I want you to call off your protest and go to the whole service Sunday. And I thought, well, I may be the first martyr in Springfield, Missouri, but I'll do it. I went in that service and they did all the stuff that I hated. And they began to sing a song that I thought was outdated. And you got to understand, I love the hymns. I am a hymn person. We, we sing contemporary worship here, but at home, I, I, I mean, it's a secret. Please don't tell anybody. But I pull out my hymns. I listen to the hymns, you know, during my worship time. And I thought, oh, this church will never reach this generation. 
And the Lord said, look at Greg. Well, I knew several Gregs, but I also knew exactly who he was talking about. Greg was, uh, if I remember correctly, he was a youth pastor there at the church, just a little older than me, um, a couple of years maybe. He was a youth pastor there at the church, and I looked at him, and he had his hands lifted like this, and he was sobbing, just sobbing. His shoulders, his whole body shook. And the Lord, I won't say everything the Lord said because it was not my best day. But he said, do you understand what's happening in Greg's life right now? And I knew better than to guess. I said, no, Lord. He said, I am putting something in his heart that it'll be years before you see blossom. And this is what he said, what are you doing for me? And I wanted to say, well, I'm standing up for good worship. I'm standing up for not wasting time. But I suddenly saw myself as God saw me. And I tell you what I said. I said, I'm doing nothing except finding fault. And that's not for you. He said, what I'm doing in Greg's life, I want to do in your life. You ready for this? But it's not going to happen at Hamby's. That was the restaurant. He said, you need to come. And as you worship me, even if it's flawed worship in your eyes, as you worship me, I will put your hand to the plow. So I go back and next Sunday I'm there and I want to tell you something, God, I I wasn't even right and I met God halfway. I was dead wrong. The worship service at Central Assembly began to transform my life. Every announcement was now an opportunity to love Jesus. Every prayer request, old Sister Papufnik may have had arthritis all week, but Sister Papufnik had served God all of those years and it's time for somebody to pray for her. And every Sunday I watched Greg, every Sunday I saw the Lord shape him. And you've probably heard his name. His name is Greg Mundus. He's the world leader of Assemblies of God Missions. He's responsible for missions all around the world. Nearly died with COVID because of his missionary activity. In fact, his family came in and told him goodbye that he would not live through the night. But I want to tell you something. Every time I think the church isn't being what it ought to be, I think of Greg Mundus. And I realize that God does not need perfect environments to raise up servants. And loved ones, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to, to, to be belligerent with this, but we, we have become connoisseurs. You know, fine wine, fine cheese, fine worship. We've become connoisseurs of worship, but we've, we've become sluggards at service. And we need to worship with all of our heart I was so blessed by what went on up here. Every week, I'm blessed by it. I I never come in and say, well, that was an off week. I've never done that with worship, not in recent memory. 
not in years. But I tell you what, we have become so precisional in our worship that we have forgotten that out of worship we go to serve. You say, well, what did you start doing? I went to the assistant pastor and I begged for something to do. I said, anything to do. I said, do you have anybody that needs an assistant? And to make a long story short, they finally made a spot for me. I was the assistant to the assistant of the assistant of the junior boys teacher, which basically meant I handed out the papers as they came in. So for months I handed out papers. Hey, Charles, how you doing, man? Hey, Billy. Hey, Ralph. You know, but I was handing out papers in the name of Jesus. Welcome Christ is the object of our service, service, not just the object of our worship. And here's the last thing, because you're done. We must see people through God's eyes and not just through our own. My pastor used to say this, may God help us to see every living person as a being of such value that Jesus would have died for them even if they were the only ones who needed saving. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And this is what Paul Lowenberg said. And he is a great preacher in the assemblies of God of days gone by. He said this, anytime someone says, he's talking about Jesus healing the man that he had to touch twice. Remember, Jesus touched him. Can you see? I see men, but I see them as trees walking. And then Jesus touched him again. Don't fall into the foolishness of thinking to pray twice is a lack of faith. Sometimes even Jesus has to touch twice. This is what Lohenberg said. He said, anytime someone says, I see men as trees walking, he needs desperately another touch from the hand of Jesus. Sometimes we see people as contributors. Sometimes we see people as workers. Sometimes we see people as something we can use we see them as trees walking. And if we don't see people the way God sees them, we need to beg him for another touch, another touch, another touch to clear our vision. Now, how do we end this today? Well, I'm glad you asked. This correction today is not us being reshaped for salvation. It's us being reshaped for service. Listen, I want, especially you younger Christians, whether you're here or listening on, online, this, this series of messages has been a tough one. It's been an in-your-face series of messages. But I want you to know, I'm not doubting your salvation. I'm not doubting God's work of grace in your life. And you shouldn't either. Don't doubt what God has done for you. Understand that every word of correction is not designed to make you feel, well, I might as well give up. That's the devil. Every word of correction is God's love saying, I love you. I love you. I'm shaping you. I'm correcting you. And it may be little things. I was playing basketball in high school. We were practicing an inbound pass with less than five seconds. And I thought I was doing great. I got the ball and I turned and said, run it again. I got the ball, I turned. 
And the coach came out. You know what he said? He said, listen, he said, I've watched you three times and it always takes you a second and a half more. He said, he said, it takes longer. He said, pivot on your right foot, not your left. And I, I said, why coach? I think my left leg's my strongest. He said, we're not interested in strength. We're interested in speed. He said, pivot on your right foot and see what happens. So I got the ball and I pivoted on my right foot. You know what I realized? I was five feet closer to the basket. And he said, after we'd done it a couple of times, he said, you save a second and a half pivoting to the right and you're five feet closer to the basket. I didn't go home and say, coach doesn't appreciate my talent. Oh, I didn't have any talent. I was a third string guard. I had just enough talent to get on the team and then just enough talent to keep that bench toasty hot. <laughs> you, know, you know what I realized? I realized an all SEC basketball player just saved me a second and a half and five feet. Loved ones, if God is correcting you, the devil wants you to feel like, oh, I was never meant to play basketball. I was never meant to serve the Lord. You're just a failure. No, the intent of the Lord is to make you the best you can be. The best you can be. Father, we're out of time. I, I'm asking you to do something that we don't know how to do. I'm asking you to do two things. I'm asking you to take these seven realities and help us to pray over them and think about them and let it be a new reality to us. Help the deacons to see it. Help the pastors to see it. Help me to see it. Help us to be led of the Spirit as never before. And Father, number two, I pray for every one of us that is so overwhelmed with correction of the past year that we're tempted to just quit. We're tempted to just say, I'll just be a supporter. I'll just, I'll just stay in the corner. No, no. We're not trying to earn our salvation. We're trying to refine our service. Encourage those that are down. Encourage those that are ready to quit today. Encourage those that say, I just can't take it anymore. Help them to realize it's for you. Now, we're going to let you go, but we always do this. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior, I encourage you when we call you to prayer in just a moment, please go to one of the ministry teams and just tell them, I need Jesus. Um, it, it's, a, it's a simple thing. It's not simplistic. It's not cheap, but it's easy. He made it easy for us to come. We basically admit that we're a sinner, believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and then pledge to serve him all the days of our life. There's a lot of theology and there's a lot of church stuff. There's a lot of stuff, but none of that's necessary to get into the kingdom. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast them away. If you're listening online and you don't know if you're a Christian, you'll see a number on the screen in just a moment. Dial that number and somebody will be ready to help you. Uh, if, if it's after, I mean, if you're listening after the service time, that's the church number. You can still get somebody, uh, you know, during office hours and just say, um, I, I want to give my life to Jesus. I watch the, the service online. They'll help you.
Would you stand with me, please? Now, as you go, may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you, give you his peace and give you his favor and give you his rest. God bless you as you go. If you want to stay and worship a while, the ministry team is about to lead us in some more worship. I love you. God bless you so much. Thank you for being here.